Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast brought to you by Martel Blue Swift. This is a slightly unusual episode for us. It marks the first time we've ever recorded the podcast in front of a live audience. A couple of Mondays ago, I sat down at the Conduit Club in Mayfair with five of the most exciting young entrepreneurs in London. And we spoke about those tricky early days of the startup game with lots of participation from 60 or so of our subscribers and friends. It's definitely one of the most interesting and downright useful episodes we've ever recorded. And we're incredibly grateful to Martel Blue Swift for collaborating with us on a very special evening indeed. In fact, Martel were the perfect partner for us on this. Their history is just as entrepreneurial as any startups. Martel, I should say, is the world's oldest major cognac house, founded in 1715. In 1783, Martel was the first to ship its barrels of cognac over to the USA, and today they celebrate another first with Martel Blue Swift, a unique spirit made from VSOP cognac matured in French oak casks and finished in Kentucky bourbon barrels. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Right, let's get going. So we've got five very, very handsome young entrepreneurs here um, who all are brilliant in their own right. From right to left, Arthur Kay, founder of BioBean, uh, who use old coffee grounds, coffee waste, to make uh, sustainable fuels. We've got Freddie Garland, brilliantly named because he runs Freddie's Flowers, a subscription flower service. Archie Hewlett from Duke and Dexter, and he's wearing a lovely pair there today, and they make very fashionable modern shoes. Henry Hales, also sporting his own clothes. Uh, he runs Surplus, which makes very fashionable clothes from surplus fabrics. And Dan Scott, the co-founder of Air Sorted, which is the concierge service for Airbnb host. I'm wearing surplus. And he's also wearing surplus, <laughs> brilliant. Um, so uh, I just want to start with kind of a general question for everyone. Um, it seems now that everyone wants to be an entrepreneur and kind of startups are the new rock and roll. But do you think everyone has what it takes to become an entrepreneur or is there a very specific set of personality traits that you need? Arthur, you're right there, so I'll let you start. Yeah, as you say, that everyone, uh, it's a very trendy thing to be an entrepreneur at the moment. I think everyone has the skill set to become an entrepreneur, but I don't think that everyone should, and far too many companies are probably being founded at the moment. And I'd probably encourage people to join exciting, mission-led, high-growth companies rather than to set up theirs just because they feel it's a cool thing to do at the moment. Are there a set kind of, are there a few personality traits you think all entrepreneurs have in common? Dan, are there, are there certain traits that you see in yourself and your founders? Well, uh, I should confess at this moment that I, um, I came in about a month after the company was founded. Um, but So I, I look at it slightly differently in that I think everyone who co-founds a business or comes in at an early stage is taking a big risk. And so at some point you have to decide you're willing to work for a low salary, uh, you're willing to work very hard for a long period of time. Um, but I think resilience, risk-taking, those are traits that... Uh, all entrepreneurs have and they say that startup years are like dog years um, so one year of, um, of real life is like seven years in a dog's life and so uh, I was thinking about this earlier and I think you've got to decide what kind of dog you are as well. Um, <laughs> what kind of dog are you? Um, well my name's Daniel so I'm Daniel the Spaniel um, <laughs> run around like a headless chicken. This is like a date. Yeah. It's, it's like a blind date. <laughs> it's to the back. Yeah. Not available. <laughs> Yeah. But we often hear, I suppose it's interesting you say that, we often hear about the, the successes and, and all the highlights of being an entrepreneur, but most of it is, in fact, sacrifice and ageing and, and turning into a dog in some ways. But uh, I wonder what the, the kind of big sacrifices you found yourself making. Freddie, were there any... You had to get up at 3am every morning, didn't you, at the start? I did. Hello, everyone. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I think the first year was pretty, pretty brutal and probably had a grave effect on my mental state. I felt horrific. Uh, I recall a nervous breakdown on the edge of... I'd been up since 2.30 in the morning and I was still delivering flowers at <clears throat> uh, 7 p.m. in the evening in Kentish Town and I had to get back to my home in Wandsworth. And I was just thinking, and I know this evening I've got to make all of the leaflets and I've got to get back up again at 2 o'clock tomorrow morning. And I just... I did actually pull over and phone someone and just start sobbing. So that was a, a brutal story, um, which is very unhappy, actually, because most of it is happy. But so I'd say the first, you know, the, it, it is just 
incredibly hard work the, the first few years, but you do have this kind of weird sense of just excitement and, and you know, that you're achieving something and there's something really exciting at the end of it that you can do, so that. Uh, this might be a bit cynical to me, but it feels like every startup now has to have this kind of interesting startup story. But kind of a cool little tale, a quirky story about how they started. Are they all bullshit, or is that, or do you think some of them are true? <laughs> I'm not looking at anyone in particular, by the way, when I ask that question. I'm trying not to make eye contact because I'm sure yours are all thoroughly ingenuous. But Freddie, do you think this could be true? Bullshit. I guess the story. Well, the the story is true. Yeah. So I um, have a surname that is Garland, and uh, my mum and dad were in the flower industry. I suppose we slightly <laughs> embellish that in that I describe my dad as a florist when he kind of had a flower shop and he doesn't like being called a florist. <laughs> and my mum kind of worked in the flower shop a bit. Um, but then, so, so to the question before in some ways, I, I also think that it, you know, I worked at a company called Abel & Cole uh, who did a, a subscription delivery service. So I kind of think it's from where, you know, an idea comes from the area you're currently working in for me anyway and I just felt that I was in subscriptions and I knew a bit about flowers and I was just like put the two into uh, this kind of works but um yeah no it's, it is quite a good story I've got actually it's not yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great uh, and what were the kind of the big mistakes you guys made early on what what do you look back on in those first years Arthur again I don't want to look at anyone I say this but Arthur what, what do you think uh you how did you mess up so in the you might not have done this. Yeah, no, messed up many, many ways on route. I think the primary way we messed up was around something which probably if you were starting a business having kind of done an MBA and thought of it like that, you would never have, never have messed up on typically. But, I mean, our business is a, a renewable energy company, so we, build, we kind of turn waste coffee grounds into advanced biofuels and biochemicals. So there's an ability there to... Uh, do a lot of stuff and employ a lot of infrastructure in doing so. And we kind of took it head on. This was someone who I'd studied architecture at university and I was kind of 23 or so at the time and thought like, I'll set up this kind of large energy company from scratch. And no one in retrospect was like, stop it, Arthur, never do this. And because of that naivety, I kind of set off on a route which in retrospect is a huge mess up. So we, we attempted to own that full supply chain. So built factories, built an R&D team from scratch, developed products, incredibly capital-intensive and very uh, complex to in, involved in employing a lot of people. And in retrospect, that was a huge mess-up that we should have focused, which is, I think, probably now, which all of us, um, well, I think some of us may agree with, I'm not sure, is that just focus on doing one thing phenomenally well and become the, the best in the world at that specific um, interventional thing. And what we were trying to do was almost the exact opposite, which is own a beginning-to-end entire supply chain and doing all of it not particularly well, and, and very expensively as well. When did you find out that uh, you'd made that mistake? Way too late. I mean, I spent a lot of my time. I spent a lot of my time surrounding myself with kind of like, you know, um, grey old men who were like, ah, Arthur, come, come with me, and we'll do it together. And so I thought, I thought these are. <laughs> I thought these were the people who would tell me these mistakes, and I think they were just kind of like, God, this guy's got balls. He's really going for it. And so uh, we realised we made the mistake a, a couple of years in when we were like, we had ended up kind of employing way too many people, building a factory from scratch, which is an expensive hobby, and then just really going for it, and then realising that we've got all this kind of infrastructure behind us that we weren't um, able to maximise. And so it was essentially realising that we were just burning through huge amounts of cash, which is the worst time to realise you've made a massive mistake and having to kind of correct course accordingly. But if I was to start a company now, I'd do it in a much more focused and, and specific way and make an intervention within a, a supply chain rather than trying to build the whole thing from scratch each time which I think is probably the blinding obvious to the audience and my fellow esteemed entrepreneurs on the panel. <laughs> I, I suppose you've got to kind of find a way to sense check your ideas and, and test if there's a market there first. And Dan, you, you and your founder, you kind of, you had a very quick and easy way to, to do that. You just bought a Facebook page and, and see, if it, yeah, see if anyone wanted it. Yeah, so massive credit to James, uh, my CEO. Um, I think on Boxing Day 2014, he had been airbnb in his flat to pay for his job he'd quit. Um, and he then th uh, went away for a week and realised that uh, it was difficult to manage his property while he was away. And 
um, in 26 minutes, this is the kind of bullshit story, but um, it's sort of the truth. Um, in 26 minutes, um, he built a landing page for a website, for a service that didn't, didn't exist, and paid 50 pounds for Facebook adverts, created a clip art logo, and uh, the business was born. And, and he signed up clients just on a promise of the service. And actually, I think, of course, the service itself at the beginning, before I joined, um, was uh, terrible. Um, but um, <laughs> but the, he was able to answer the question, the, the first and most important question, do people actually want to buy what I'm providing? Um, and but he really offered the service. He offered the service, he said the service, this, yeah. this management <clears throat> service exists. Yeah. And then when, when he started getting clients ringing him and saying, yeah, I want to pay for your service, we then had to build the business. That's harder to do with, with something like shoes, I guess, or, or clothes, because really you're not reinventing the wheel, you're just doing a kind of new variation. I think um, the only insight I had, I didn't tell uh, friends for a year and a half. Um, reason behind that was because I uh, didn't know what I was doing, so I didn't want them telling me to do anything otherwise um, or to try and change um, the idea. I think the only thing I can remember from a product perspective, um, which again is such a very, very small, um, slightly irrelevant sort of marketing um, form of research, but it was going to family events and my parents did know and they couldn't resist but tell people um, that I was making velvet slippers, which sounded very lame. Um, uh, and the, 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 uh, the, yeah, the feedback and research I got where people would always say, oh, I'd love to get a pair. Could I get a discount? Um, which is a very common occurrence. And, uh, and off the back of that, they would always follow up the next day. So I'd give them a card and say, yeah, sure, um, you know, get in touch and I'll give you a discount. Uh, and they would always follow up. I think that was a very, very small insight into, you know, it's very, you're never going to launch a new product. Tell someone about it uh, and they're going to go, that's shit. Um, they'll always tell you to your face it's good, um, unless they're yeah, very close friend or mentor or whatever. Um, and I think that yeah, was a very small insight into potential. Yeah, talk, talking of mentors, I think as you're all fairly young and inexperienced, you probably all look to more experienced people for advice. We, ha we, had, we recorded a podcast with Nick Woodman, who founded GoPro, GoPro the other day. And our podcast, by the way, is available wherever you can get podcasts. Um, and it's brilliant. So that episode comes out on Thursday. But, um, but he said that the, the, the worst thing he ever did was look for mentors because he was trying to disrupt an industry and they were all, as you say, old grey heads who, who gave him the wrong advice. Have you guys found it difficult to, uh, to find mentors? They don't want to jump in on that. Can I answer your, your previous question? Um, <laughs> in fact, loads of your previous questions, because I completely missed them. Uh, but I, uh, I started buying surplus shirts from shirt makers and making them into boxer shorts. And that's why it's called Surplus. And um, that came about because I was trying to uh, make a completely different kind of business, which I won't go into. Um, so that was a eureka moment. Um, but I only thought I'd ever make clothes using surplus fabric. And after growing the business for a couple of years and turning down some great opportunities for growth because I just wanted to make using surplus, I realized that actually to grow, we would have to start to make using you know, non-surplus fabric. So now surplus accounts for about 30% of our, of our range. But if I'd have listened to everyone you know, two years before who was saying, you're never going to build your business if you just make using surplus fabric, then, uh, then I'd probably be kind of a couple of years ahead. But if I'd li listened to them at the very beginning when they said, you know, the whole thing is unviable, then I wouldn't be where I am now. So you kind of got to okay. make your own, you know, lessons and, yeah. D Dan, did you look to any, any kind of older mental figures? Um, I think you pick up mentors naturally because you are talking to someone and then things that they say resonate with you. And then I think you've still got to uh, look at the, the data I'm quite data-driven, but if you look at the facts that are around you and compare what your mentor said with reality every now and then, at some point you realise your mentor might be not giving you that useful advice. Or maybe their advice was great six months ago in your life cycle of your business, but now it's no longer that interesting. Um, and it's not that awkward. You just stop ringing them um, and, and, uh, and pick another one. And, and don't have to do it in a formal, formal way. It's a normal process. I'd say, personally, I'd say you know, I've, the mentor I've got, I suppose, is a chap called Keith who's, uh, who's given me some money very generously. And um, the impact he's had, I've felt, is, is you know, he's a very experienced businessman. And he, um, you know, I think to these guys' points, I would have probably gone charging off and, you know, doing all sorts of different things with flowers and having 
10 different boxes that someone could buy and you know can you buy it for your friend yes you can can you you know we'd be selling plants all of that kind of thing but actually we literally have one thing that goes out every week and it's just one arrangement um which is just and, and he'd been through all the crap with his company called abel and cole which is like organic fruit and vegetable and he'd sort of been through all the rubbish you know trying loads of different things is, is a bad idea to his view and that's just helped us massively so the you know we've just stuck to one thing and it's literally one thing which just means there's no complexity which makes it really really easy so it's been positive for me having a mentor would you only stick to what you're doing now in terms of your range well, I think we've been doing that for four years and I'd say it's maybe just getting to the point where <clears throat> some of the early customers who, I, who we got sort of in the first four months who are kind of the maverick people who want to support a twat like me, um, you know, fractionally four years, four years later they might be getting fractionally bored of, of, the, of the product. Um, and I'd potentially be keen to like, you know, we're thinking about whether we could do a sort of party box that someone could dip into just to create that little bit, just a bit more expensive, that yeah. could just create a bit more interest for them. But, you know, it's working really well just having one thing and it just strips out so much complexity to the business. And I think complexity in a business is, is creates complexity and, and challenges and costs and stuff, which is what we don't have, which is great. I think on the, um on the mentor side, I think if you get rid of the word mentor and you kind of have um, a network of people around you that are doing other things, doing running businesses and um, not even you know, running businesses, but are involved in businesses in different um, ways and angles, I think it becomes so powerful. Um, I think going out the best kind of evenings um, from a business perspective is, is going out and you know when you've had a shit day or whatever, you get to just um, relate to someone else who you know you've seen and they look like their business is um, doing amazingly and the reality is they've got problems um, left right and center as well and I think that's a really sort of um, yeah nice way of leveling things out you kind of wake up the next day you know that you know you might have problems but everyone else does it's all of um, you know a bit of a shit show at times um, and that kind of eliminates yeah this idea of needing a particular mentor because I think the problem with a mentors to some degree is if you are reaching out to people and you are building a network is it is quite difficult to say um, no or to ignore someone's advice when they've got you know x credentials and x experience behind mm. them yeah, um, yeah. Uh, well, uh, sorry uh, to Archie's point um, a mentor, I found a mentor is actually just giving advice to your business um, because they're, they're, those are similar but separate entities you as an individual and the business and uh, if you've got someone who uh, understands the pressures you're going through. That can be really helpful. Often you um, you think the best mentor would be the person in your industry who's who's done the best, but quite often they can be a long way away from what you're doing now. So they might have a team of people doing what you're doing, and they can't relate to what it's like having to fulfil X amount of orders whilst also keeping a shop open and you know handling the HR sort of thing. So. Sometimes the, the guy who you read about the most in the press and you reach out to thinking he's going to change all your problems is not the best person and you'd be who better. Did you, who did you reach out to? I, I, I quite <laughs> often... being filmed by the way. Yeah. Um, Harry Jarman. Um, no, I reached out to loads of people. Nick Wheeler from Charles Tirrett, yeah. who uh, occasionally gives me one-liners in response. He, he was very helpful, actually. Um, but, you know, also very busy. Um, I've reached out to kind of lots of the, the, the top guys and, and often do. But you might find that somebody who works in a trimmings shop um, is more able to advise you on, on kind of particular things and understand small business. And so yeah, it's about kind of having a network that can, you can turn to, not just the guys at the top. Mm. Were you ever kind of selfish with your ideas? Did you ever um, worry that if you told a mentor about it, they might just go do it better than you? Arthur. Yeah, well, I have two views on this. One is, I think, don't be precious about your ideas and be willing to share them with people. But I found, about, I found this out the, the hard way in which, when I was in the very early stage of setting up my first company, the renewable energy business, my first mentor, I got some prize money from then Mayor Boris Johnson, who uh, seeded, I mean, he did one good thing. He seeded our business, gave us £20,000 to go and set up Bybee. Great, great guy. <laughs> <laughs> 
but the first mentor we were given by City Hall, the GLA, was a guy who literally, and this is like a formal mentor-mentee relationship, kind of, I was still a student at the time, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and he stole my idea. And I was like, what the hell? Yeah. So I, I was, my view of business at the time was that everyone was a real baddie, and he literally just did the real baddie thing and stole it, set up a competitor company. Our company was called Biobean. He called his company Beanergy, i.e. Bean Energy. Um, set it up. He had a very wealthy father. His father gave him four million pounds to set up this company. This guy was 50. I was like, what is going on? Anyway, he then set it up. It luckily, I mean, luck, I mean, I got given advice at the time. I was so like worried and upset. I got advice from our then lawyers who said, if this guy's like a 50-year-old mentor and stealing a 23-year-old's idea, probably not going to do that well at business. And I was like, oh, Mark. Well, anyway, luckily, we didn't have enough money to actually sue him. And so we just ignored it and carried on. And sure enough, he, burnt, he got a really swanky office, hired a bunch of people, went bust, bought all the wrong machinery, went bust very quickly, and we were like, oh, great. And then, <laughs> and then away we went. So, Did you um, try and buy any of his ma machinery? No, because it, it was all the wrong, it was literally like the wrong machine. It, was like, it wasn't even close. It, was like, <laughs> it, was, it wasn't even close to being the right machine. But the, the, the good thing about it was that it kind of taught me a lot in terms of like real baddies doing baddie thing. I was like, it was like a cartoon of bad business person. But the good thing was that I'm now actually relatively um, relaxed about sharing ideas because the key is not in, as again, I think people would agree with, not in the idea, it's in the execution of that idea. Mm -hmm. And people, and particularly in the really early stage, people get very heated up about this is my idea, I own it, and I'm going to go after anyone who, who gets in my way. But the, the challenge is having the kind of half the, uh, it's not quite bravery, but the ability to recognise that this is not about the idea, it's about how you then go and forth and deliver. And so I'm now pretty okay with kind of sharing ideas um, with people and, and trying to get them on board with it rather than competing with them to get it done. I'd also say that um, a small amount of competition, I think, isn't, isn't a dreadful thing. I mean, if they're, if they're going to steal your idea, they're definitely going to do it totally different to how you do it. I mean, there's no way that they'll just do it differently. And actually to have a, something out there that's not too dissimilar actually just starts creating awareness. And as long as you do it better than them, then it ends up actually creating quite a, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing at all, I think. And Dan, you've, there's, there's obviously a few different now concierge companies that deal with host making and Airbnb. Has that helped you or hindered you, do you think, the competition? Um, the competition, I think, has, well, firstly, when we started out, though our biggest competitor had been around for 18 months, no one had really picked up on it. And uh, so we found it quite easy to persuade people to sign up for our service, even when there wasn't a service. Um, but uh, I think over time, we, we initially th we thought our competitor, which is Hostmaker, the biggest one in London, so we're the biggest, but they're the biggest competitor. Um, they, um, <laughs> yeah, it's competitive. They seemed very similar to us in the beginning. And then as time has gone on, we've realized, to Freddie's point, we've realized how differently we've run those businesses. And when you say the word concierge, I kind of uh, flinch because sorry um, it's all right, we're half a technology business, half service, but it's very much aimed at, to, to, um, aimed at everyone. And um, I think that, that they've very much gone down the concierge branded hotel routes and we've gone down the technology platform network routes and so I think uh, the, the competition has probably been a good thing in terms of raising awareness in the same way and um, if there's a precedent for investment for example that's also a good thing so if someone's already raised five million for an idea that looks very similar to yours and you're doing better than them then you can raise more than them. Mm. Yeah it's, it's an interesting thing uh, fundraising because you're all at kind of different levels and you've all gone through different strategies I mean Dan you've you've done both crowdfunding and also kind of private equity, haven't you? Uh, yes, so we've done, um, I think, three... We had an accelerator round, PyLabs we were part of, and then three uh, rounds of funding, uh, both um, individuals, angels, uh, crowd investors and institutional. Yeah. And then, Henry, on the other hand, you have never raised any money in your... No, so, so we've, we've grown uh, organically and um, haven't taken on funding, but uh, we'll look at it in the new year. So uh, I'll be tapping you up for a coffee. <laughs> and, yeah. what, and what would be your preferred way of raising, raising money next year? Um, through uh, three people who can add a bit more than, than the cash, um, through a kind of uh, maybe 10 people, um, relatively small amounts, not small, small, but... But you'd um, have a crowdfund, for example? 
Probably not, no. Um, I haven't really thought it through, but my initial, as in I've, I have, I've thought it through, but my initial response was that you're kind of opening it up to a lot of people, and I quite like to have things tight and not kind of show people your inner workings, just because it's a, it's a fashion brand. It's, you know, it's, it's exciting and it's, you know, you don't want, when I, when I read Business of Fashion and you look at what other brands are doing and their operation and their, you know, recruitment and their strategy, it, it takes away the glamour of it. So I want to keep the brand quite protected. And Archie, you, um, you started off with a kind of a small sum which you borrowed yeah. from your family. Yeah. Uh, do you think that made you, the fact that you knew you had a kind of finite amount of cash, that made you hungry? Yeah, I think, um, so we still haven't uh, raised, I think. Uh, I did things badly at the start. Um, I waited too long to bring hires in and so on. Um, and that was probably when I didn't seek advice. But it, yeah, definitely to the point on <coughs> understanding a business and understanding metrics. And I think people that are very good at um, business, if you like, and have built big businesses are very, very scary in the way they can come across because they can strip apart your business very quickly. They can talk, you know, every line of um, their business. Um, and I think, it, you know, without meaning to, um, that's what it allowed me to do was, you know, know that you have a very finite amount of cash. Um, I didn't really have anything else uh, going on at the time. So it kind of had to work in my eyes. Um, and what it meant was that, you know, from a um, return on investment perspective, every single pound had to, you know, to make at least double back. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, a massively powerful thing. Uh, I would completely agree with Henry on the point of, um, you know, brands and opening up to, you know, showing what's behind the brand and the business. You've got to have a magic factor. You also, I think, want to hold out until you know, right, if I take on this amount, I can, I can do this with it. Yeah. Because um, a lot of people get quite big valuations um, based on saying, look, this is the sector we're going into, this is the size of that sector, and this is how much we're going to own. And uh, you can get a £5 million valuation, and, and that's very exciting. Um, and many, many companies like Dan's go on to do amazing things. But others don't get the trajectory that, that they've kind of um, forecasted, and therefore it kind of creates a bit of hostility, I would imagine, and it's quite hard to follow up on. I think it does as well, it's a very, very um, one-sided view on it, but it, if you raise a lot of money initially um, and you're essentially raising money off a dream, um, because obviously you haven't done anything yet, um, it, it, can, it can make you quite lazy um, because you can hire very, very quickly. And sure, if, you know, if you've got a great idea and there are obviously you know, fantastic businesses that have grown exponentially through raising, making the right hires, having the right um, mentor um, and support at the, at the top level. Um, but it can and it does make people um, inherently very lazy. Um, and some of the best stories in the way in which people have built very sustainable businesses long term that you know still admired, um, kind of the Paul Smith I like. Um, you know, they know the inner workings of how customer service worked, how fulfillment worked, how ops works, everything. Whereas if you imagine starting a business, taking on two million with your dream, you know, you've already got a head of marketing, a customer service system and so on. I, I challenge that in one way, which is that um, I still I I would say that money I, I took on a bit of cash quite a lot to start with actually so the Keith guy um, he, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was he, he was willing to kind of give me a, a fair bit of money which was really nice to get started and together we formed like a very clear plan of what we wanted to achieve over five years and he had the experience of a subscription business um, which was very similar to mine and um, you know he we very clearly mapped out what we could get with his money um, so I'd say that I think the plan is essential, but I, I'd say the money isn't, you know, no matter, I, no matter how much money you have, you're, you're not going to make it, you're still going to go through the whole stages of a, of a startup. So, I, you know, if you're given 10 million quid, you're still going to work in a dreadful office for a bit and then an, another, you might work in a quite nice office, but you, there's, you, you can't set it up like, you can't just click your fingers and set up a business. How close to your plan did you go? We are we're above plan. Above plan. <laughs> yeah. No, we're, we're about like two years behind it actually. But it, it was an ambitious plan, and um, uh, and you know it's it's fine now. It's it's great, um, but 
yeah, I mean, I think you're always, it's, it's difficult to hit your plan. Yeah, yeah. You know, you just set out this ridiculously ambitious plan and then, and then you get kind of close to it. And we've kept in touch with it, which is great. So I hope that my point was clear. I, I, I remember when I did my first plan, and I, th I would be a multi-billionaire by now. Because um, <laughs> uh, I, I think that's the other thing to say, is that you, without having done something, you often think, this is actually really easy. I just need to get you know, 10,000 people to spend 165 pounds, and you know, how hard can that be? Um, yeah, having never done it, it seems easy, but um, selling things or fixing things or whatever it might be, getting customers is difficult, and things, I, I would say, probably take about three times as long as you would expect they do yeah. um, before you've done it. And then when you've, when you've done it, you realize, okay, well, you know, things take time. Perhaps let's be a little bit less um, optimistic and a bit more realistic. And that, yeah, that's something you learn. I'm always interested with founders, when, if they've raised a lot of money or if they haven't, how they work out the size of their own salary because they're in charge, essentially. There must be a temptation if you raise a lot of money early on to give yourself a big old bonus, but then that's only going to come out of your bottom line after all. I'm not going to ask... Arthur, your own, your own worth? That's quite an existential question. <laughs> in terms of, what, in terms of salary or in terms yeah, of... Yeah, when do you start paying yourself a salary and, and, and how do you calculate it? I, I always think less is more. I, I, I'm not a big... I think I try and keep... I think the CEO will typically be paid the most in the company and you either get paid... And so, therefore, it gives a natural cap in terms of what it is. So I'm a big fan of low salaries, high equity stakes. So I set up share option schemes in both, both firms and look to reward people in terms of get, giving them skin in the game, but not through cash, because there are better uses in the short term. Excellent. And when we're talking about hiring new people, what, what do you look for when you were making your first hires? Is there a kind of a, a curveball question you all gave to check if people fitted culturally? Freddie, who was your first hire? Uh, a friend of yours in the crowd, a very lovely lady called Beanie Robinson, who um, I was just looking for, like, friends of my brothers, I seem to remember. <laughs> no, it was, it was very much just, um, just like, I need someone who's quite nice, <laughs> and it, it was a customer service role, and um, it was just like I needed to get on with them, basically, and they didn't need any great skill set. It was just I, I just wanted to get someone in who was really talkative and friendly and was going to, if someone had a problem with flowers, <laughs> was going to relate to that on the telephone. So it, and I found them on Facebook through my brother and, um, and that's how a huge amount of employees came through, it was just through Facebook actually and, and, that, and that worked well. What about you Archie, who are your first eyes? Um, I've definitely gone through um, the process of um, hiring Junior and, and uh, you know, a lot of the hires um, were fantastic but we just reached a cap. So we built a team, uh, probably about eight people or so. Um, so yeah, I think you know there, there's a huge advantage of, of as um, Freddie says about you know knowing people or having some sort of link to them. All our best hires, even to date, have, have come through um, references um, or word of mouth. But um, yeah, you you, you got to be careful of making sure you get the right hires at the right time. It's so easy when you're so busy um, to just want to hire people, um, and it's definitely my biggest regret is just yeah, too easily yeah. um, you know just letting people come in people can say people can interview really well um, and they can say a lot of crap um, that they just can't stand by um, and it's a yeah much harder um, process of, of getting rid of them and refining things um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. give them some tasks <laughs> give them some tasks <laughs> the nice thing I suppose about starting a business is that you can build a culture completely from the ground up and you don't inherit any bad habits. Uh, how have you guys made your workplaces attractive, dynamic places? Archie, you're laughing about something, so I'll go to you. Freddie's in the crowd and he works in my office. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can't make things up. <laughs> but, uh, but you hear now startups having kind of half days and, and all these very modern things with sleep pods and free pizza, I'm told. We don't get it at the Gentleman's Journal, I should add. Um, <laughs> oh, no, he's very, very generous. But, um, <laughs> uh, but, but, but Henry, have you made uh, uh, kind of attractive... Do you try and make it fun, for Yeah, example? well, we have, uh, we have nice coffee. Um, in terms of funness, uh, we've started doing a few more team, team drinks. And then in, in answer to your previous question, uh, RE management, I think that if you try and work very hard, 
and uh, encourage those people who do work very hard, but then also accept that there will inevitably be some people who, who join the team who want to you know, get in at nine and leave at six, and, and, and that's their, their career path. Um, so trying to encompass everyone and nurture the real hard workers and help them grow and accept the other guys. And um, in terms of creating a, a, good, a good work atmosphere, I think it's all about you know, everyone being able to approach you and honesty and kind of transparency. I was going to say, this is very, you know, just having the shared goal and the excitement of, of, of a startup is, is so important and just making sure that everyone's really, everyone who does come on board is so bought into the idea of what you're trying to do and really like, you know, prepared to put in the time to, to help it, I think, and, and that kind of creates this great bond amongst everyone that you know you're doing something really, especially if it's working, you all know you're doing something really exciting. Which is really important. And we touched on it, but um, you know, you, as you grow as well, obviously coming back to this, the hiring process, you bring in junior people and they're brilliant and they stay and um, become um, you know, fully integrated with the business. Um, but you also inevitably end up bringing in more senior people, um, obviously seniority experience, um, so they're slightly older. So things like going to the pub and stuff doesn't always work. It doesn't always, you know, some, some people's idea of um, a nice evening, you know, there's um, members of our team have obviously got kids um, their nice evenings are going home and so on um, and, and chilling out so I think um, the key for us is is that um, concept of letting people kind of work um, their own hours to some extent I think you know you can create a really good harmony of you know good hard-working ethic um, with people staying late if they need to because it's you know obviously um, acceptable and, and done so but also if people do want to um, get away early or you know, two colleagues want to go um, and have a drink on a Thursday afternoon or whatever they can do. Um, and I think that's kind of the one universal structure that, again, uh, small businesses um, primarily can adopt to, to as a big success. You all seem like perfectly nice young men, but we have this idea of entrepreneurs in our head that they're very hard-nosed and, and opinionated and they can be very they can be very harsh on their employees. Have you guys ever had to kind of really crack the whip? I can't imagine any of you shouting at anyone, for example. <laughs> I'm so bad at it. I, I, the one thing I, <clears throat> I'm a really bad manager, not bad manager, but I think I was saying to Henry just before, I really like being liked at work, which is a weird thing to admit, but I think because I'm kind of trying to really push the vibe of the company and be a real, you know, you just got to be, I've got to be nice all the time, basically. So one of the things I was going to say is I think it's important to recognise people's great when it's all going really well and I'm good at telling people they're great and stuff, but I definitely need some help when it comes to the management side of it, which is like setting the targets and making sure that's delivered on and stuff. When someone's kind of not necessarily reacted in the best way, if I'm being intense and they don't react well or they don't learn or don't change their behaviour, then I've achieved nothing. So. Um, Trying to recognise the moment in which you're talking to someone who actually loves to be pushed and loves to be analysed. And some people actually don't really like criticism. And you've got to recognise how to critique them in a more gentle way and bring them on. Um, and I think that, coming back to um, Arthur's point, that's a lifelong endeavour. And uh, um, you know, really like 40, 50 years, I think. Um, so that's probably what the grey-haired people are much better at, is it explains to you how to relate to the people in your team. And we've hired, I think, about 400 people. We've got about 240 left, so um, uh, over a five, four-year period. But, um, <laughs> but uh, recognising who's there and what their motivations are mm. um, is a huge part of it. So before we kind of go to some questions from the crowd, I want to talk about the future. And, and I wonder, even though you're all at fairly early stages, if you have an eye on an exit and and cashing in. Is there, is there an offer that could come through the door, Freddie, that would make you give away Freddie's flowers? Um, <clears throat> not, I don't, I, really, I, don't, I don't think there is at the moment. I mean, we're not really doing well enough for, for a, a really ridiculously great offer to come in. And, um, and I just think it's so fun and enjoyable at the moment. And um, there aren't many other things I would want to do. And, you know, there's a, we, we've, I suppose we've got a sort of rough five-year plan from now again that, that you know we we might think about doing something then but I, i'd probably i just it's just really fun and so we don't have any great plans to do anything at the moment what about you archie um uh yeah i've, I've so i've been down a potential route um was approached by a fashion group um big fashion group um 
and went to seek advice uh, on it because um, yeah, wanted to know you know what uh, other people are doing. Um, the feedback was um, you know do you know what you want to do next? Uh, and I remember vividly remember lying and saying yeah I, I definitely know. Um, I had no idea. Um, so ended up um, not going ahead. And I think exactly what Freddie would say. I think you've got to work out whether you're enjoying it and having fun and whether that you know um, that. The classic conversation of you know, do you wake up in the mornings and get excited about going to work or not? Um, I think if that stops, then the business will um, only go one way, um, and I think that also goes hand in hand, um, you know, for for me anyway, with um, whether or not I would ever exit and leave. Henry, well, I've I've really enjoyed growing it to this stage and um, put a lot of passion and love into it and get a lot out of it. Um, we've got the infrastructure in place in terms of the buying team and the supply chain and the retail. Um, so now we can look at growing. And um, I have a plan in mind, a five-year plan, but I don't intend to kind of exit in that time frame. I look at this in two ways. One is um, actually the hard thing about hard things, which is a great book by Ben Horowitz, um, is when someone comes along and offers you more than you reasonably think you can create in a reasonable time frame to so say the next five years, how, where do I think I can take this business to? If someone offers you a price that takes it beyond that, then you have to ask yourself the question, um, are you doing it just for your, for your lifestyle because you want to be in control of the business? Um, but the question we give, the answer we give to every investor is that uh, we just want to keep building value in the business. So making the business better and keep doing that. And at some point, someone will come along and make us an offer we can't refuse. Um, and I suppose the alternative to that is actually going through a process and saying in two and a half years, three years, four years time, we will IPO or we will um, go through a sale process. Um, and I think those are both very reasonable uh, paths, um, but, um, but really the focus should be on how in the next three months or the next six months or the next 12 months can I make this business a better business. Mm -hmm. Arthur, what do you think? I agree. Excellent. <laughs> uh, good to end on some consensus. Uh, so I wonder if anyone's got any questions then to our five excellent entrepreneurs. Um, anyone? This chap in the all the people's glasses. What were your uh, biggest challenges growing your business and looking to grow for the future? Um, I'd say for me it was finding our supply chain, um, which took a long time. And um, you have to constantly talk to different people and um, try different things out to ensure you can get a really quality garment um, and it's something you build over years and you need to keep different people making the same product so that if that factory gets really busy at that time you can find another factory and if that factory's quality starts to go down a little bit you've got something else backed up so we're constantly trying to improve our supply chain. Focus. Just doing one one thing well rather than it's already been discussed but you know, as things start to grow, um, even in very early stages, a lot of people reach out to you. Um, a lot of people want to do things, and um, you know, some of it's obviously sales-driven or a sales pitch, but some of it's just, oh, we want to work with you, or we want to do this, want to do that. Um, you've got to learn to say no. Um, it's not necessarily rude, um, and you've just got to focus on things. Otherwise, you end up having so many plates spinning, and none of them really pay. Mm. I agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. Anyone else got a question? <laughs> How did you know when to leave behind your profession if you had one previously and take the leap and devote your entire life to this? What made you do it? Um, I can answer that. Um, I had done four years at um, my last company and I think I'd sort of, I just very clearly reached the pinnacle of what I felt I could get out of that company. So it was running a door-to-door -door, um, sales team and uh, done quite well and kind of worked through and, and was managing quite a lot of people and stuff. And I just suddenly thought, this I can just see that this is the peak of this. I'm not particularly excited by the next level. I've got quite a good idea sort of simmering in my mind. And I just, you know, I was, I was just like, I might, I might as well give it a crack. Um, because I was just fra getting fractionally bored, basically. And I think getting bored is a dreadful thing. So I just thought, let's, let's try something. I started when I left uh, uni, 
um, and it was relatively risk-free at that stage. And I think that you can do a lot of the early stage things um, in between, you know, leaving work and going to bed, whether it's you know doing your logo, getting your website built, getting your product sourced, so that when you when you leave, you can you're, you've got a running start. Because otherwise, you'll I think hand in your notice and realize actually, you know, the web developer can't make my, web, my website for three months, or you know, certain things take time. So, I think um, yeah, get get the framework ready and then and then go for it. I had a um, job in property recruitment very briefly before I started. Um, didn't go to university and then um, was pressured into getting a job um, quite quickly. Um, and the only tip I'd have again, you know, starting um, and, and doing work or starting your business while you're at work. Um, it makes a lot of sense. You'd be, there's a lot of, we've all said, you know, if you plan this, it takes this long, it takes um, three times longer. Um, so not necessarily leaving work until you feel you absolutely have to is a um, yeah, very clever thing to do. And um, I remember I took an iPad in and somehow managed to get away with saying that it, I typed faster on it. And obviously you can put an iPad screen on a desk. So if anyone wants a Insight, that's the best way of learning. Ah, it's the best way of working at work. <laughs> so, obviously, as young entrepreneurs and startup businesses, you go through periods of dark times where you're not doing too well. How do you cope with said periods of time and what do you do to get through them? Cry. <laughs> <laughs> go to the sauna. <laughs> <laughs> I could attempt to answer that question. Um, seriously, uh, how, how do you cope with uh, difficult times? Um, I think you've got to step back and look at what's in your control. Um, and uh, often you can imagine that things that you, well, you imagine there are things that are not in your control and actually that you can have some influence over them. Um, sometimes things feel like they're out of Sort of spinning out of, away out of control, but actually you can do something, and so identifying what that is, and um, and, and I think refocusing often helps. So um, ignoring certain risks that you're leaving on the table, and um, and then taking on the, the biggest one, and making sure that you're really not leaving that un, um, unattended. And you've got to chat to people about it as as well, and talk to you know if you're if you've got a small group of people around you, then you can be in a kind of complete pickle one evening and then you just go and chat to someone about it and realise quite quickly it's not it's never quite as bad as you as, as you think it is and, and when you actually put your mind to it you can work out what to do. I find that when you listen to the news you realise <laughs> you know <laughs> what what's happening and you're like, actually, you know, I'm a relatively small part of this and my problems aren't that big, you know. Yeah. And yeah. like there's other stuff that could could yeah. be happening. I'm alive. I'm happy. I'm healthy. You know, yeah. making it's nice clothes. Happened. You know, <laughs> times are good. I think, yeah, speaking to people is definitely. Um, you know, speak as I said. I'm speaking to other um, in, interesting people in business, founders of other companies, um, because uh, you know, unless you're doing something spectacularly wrong, everyone who's doing reasonably well makes their stuff look good from the outset. The marketing, the social, and so on. Um, but as I say, there's, there's no business that's just clean sailing um, from the startup world, it's zero. Um, so everyone's got problems and niggles and something's let them down. There's too many variables to go wrong. So speaking to others is the best way of, again, understanding the severity of your problem, which is minor. I've got a folder where I take screen grabs of funny things and um, <laughs> that's great. Um, so you can look through that and it's very amusing. There's this one guy who <laughs> bought um, a waistcoat from us and um, he, he returned it uh, the, a couple of weeks later and it had obviously been worn. So we replied saying, I'm afraid this has been worn, we can't, um, we can't sell it. And he replied saying, that's outrageous, you know, I didn't, didn't wear it. Um, and we actually Googled him and found a picture on his Instagram of him wearing it, um, <laughs> being like, looking baller. Um, so we, we sent him the picture. Um, anyway, this is a, a long story, but saying, if you save all of the things that you know, amuse you, upset you, frustrate you, and then go back to them, it always cheers you up. Yeah. Did he respond? Yeah, he did. He was like, 
Um, well, he sent me on a guilt trip, so I just refunded him anyway. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that, don't do that. I'm trying to make friends um, again. <laughs> but I was worried he'd give us a bad review. No, um, I refund, yes. Because at the, the end of the day, you know, he, he said he was going through a tough time, so it wasn't really worth it. But, um, wow. Yeah, so don't buy stuff from us, wear it and return it. So <laughs> I won't do that again. Okay, cool. I, well, let's wrap it up there. I'm sure everyone's got places to go. I have one more question for the panel. Oh, right. um, you mentioned uh, ref uh, discounts, so, uh, people coming up to you and asking you if they could buy your product, but at a discount. Do you think that's, or how, if you're going to start another business tomorrow, yeah. how would you react in that situation next time? In the same um, I, I, think at the, I think at the start, a completely different um, model. I think if, you know, if, you're, if you're literally at the start of selling your first handful of whatever product, um, it's different. I think in today's world, discounting, we could t have a whole different panel discussion on it. Um, yeah, I, I, my view would be that too many brands fall into discounting. Um, we fall into it far too much. Um, I think it comes back to the storytelling side and speaking very much from a brand's perspective rather than a business's perspective. Um, you know, you've got to tell stories in today's world and have a, 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 an emotional connection with a customer to eliminate um, discounting. Um, yeah, would be my very strong view, but that is hard and it takes time. I think initially, if, uh, yeah, to, to gauge um, potential um, opportunity, I think if someone's asking for a discount and you are literally at the start, then I, I think you can sort of let, let it down. I think I probably get about 20 texts a day asking for it. Seriously. How many of them from Harry John? Uh, <laughs> no, he asked for freebies, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually got several freebies from Henry and Surplus. I must disclose that. Um, <laughs> no, so no. Several? Do you, actually? Uh, yeah, maybe not. Who are you speaking with? <laughs> anyway, I think we should probably end it there for many reasons. <laughs> um, but uh, before we go, thank you very much to Martel Blue Swift who have, who have helped us put this on and they've been brilliant and it all looks beautiful and amazing and the cocktails were particularly nice, especially as I was very nervous beforehand. So three of those helped quite a lot. Um, and also thank you, of course, to everyone at Gentleman's Journal. Robbie did an incredible job uh, putting this together um, and all our designers who made these lovely looking things at quite short notice. Uh, but more importantly, thank you to our panel of Dan, Henry, Archie, Freddie and Arthur. And thanks to you guys for coming. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with more invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurs, raconteurs and tastemakers. But in the meantime, you can read more at thegentlemansjournal.com or follow us on Instagram at thegentsjournal. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you very, very soon.